Are you of the household of Epaphroditus? Last night as we begin the series of thoughts, I noted the first title Paul gave Epaphroditus. In verse 25, he referred to him as his brother. And last night I said to you that was an amazing title when you consider not only who these men were, but where they came from. Paul was an ultra-Orthodox Jew raised at the feet of Gamaliel, an upper crust, well-educated, powerful, elite, white-collar Jewish political figure. But on the other side of the stage was Epaphroditus. He was the polar opposite of Paul. He was a pagan Gentile whose name literally meant belonging to Aphrodite that was a sensual pagan female goddess. He would have been lower educated, blue collar, minimally educated, and certainly a commoner in the land. And I noted to you last night, men like these had nothing in common for centuries. Great walls and barriers have been built up between them, even in their approach to God. But then one day, someone came along and changed the whole thing. His name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly, Paul, he trusted Christ as Savior. Epaphroditus came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And where these two men once had been separated politically, culturally, religiously, socially, suddenly they had a common bond in Jesus Christ. And I reminded you, Jesus Christ brought two things with him this universe had never seen till he showed up and did that work at Calvary and resurrected from the grave. Number one, he brought with him to this entire globe equal access to the God of this universe. Amen? That had never happened before. The Jew was the, he was the God of Israel and the God of the Gentiles. Access to God was limited and restricted for centuries. One man, one day out of the year, could meet with him face to face, but suddenly Jesus Christ comes and he goes ahead and lives that sinless life that you, you and I couldn't live and then died the perfect sacrifice for sin we could never hope to do. And the day he resurrected from the grave, listen, when he died and his work was finished, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. Where once access to God was limited and restricted, now it's broad and wide. He said, whosoever will may now come to the God of this universe. Amen? Amen. Listen, you want the favor of God tonight, you'll not find it in a church. You want the eternal favor of this God, you're not going to find it in self-righteousness. You're not going to find it in a religious institution or a religious uh, activity such as baptism or even the Lord's Supper. You want the eternal favor of this God? You want boldness to come before him? It'll be by the blood of Jesus Christ that happens, plus or minus nothing. He is the one who literally exposed the very throne room of God and said, whosoever will may now come. Amen? We call that the priesthood of the believer. But second of all, Jesus, we noted last night, brought with him something else, and it was it was common fellowship with one another. Not only vertically did he change that between man and God, but horizontally he changed it between Jew and Gentile, which were the polar opposites. And now regardless of who you are tonight, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, white or African-American, it doesn't matter tonight. If you trust Christ as Savior and enter into fellowship with the Father through His Son, you automatically have the opportunity then to fellowship with one another. Amen? Not only equal access to God, but common fellowship. And we illustrated that, and uh, 
Michael, you come up here. You're my stand-in. Connor is working tonight, but you'll work. Come on up here, and we're going to let you be the illustrator here for just a moment, all right? Connor was fun last night. I kind of miss him. We need to pray him back tomorrow night. That was a lot of fun, all right? And you come right over here, all right? And so uh, Michael's going to be the replacement, but uh, I note, and I could probably run through the list, Michael and I have a lot of differences. First of all, you have to look closely. There's a generation difference, an age difference. It, just passing quickly, you'd never see it. But uh, if you study it out and look closely, you'll notice we got some years between us. Or I'm 58, you are? Uh, 20. 20. Okay, that is a, we call that a generation, a couple generation <laughs> gap. All right? That just means, all that means is we're thinking differently. We, got, we were raised under a whole different set of American standards and things. Y'all with me? So we got some differences there. Second of all, I'm military. You're probably civilian. Civilian, okay? We actually would say slimy civilian. That's what we'd always say. But anyhow, we'll just leave it at civilian. I never said that, okay? So, uh, so military, non-military. Now, I grew up a farm boy on a beef operation. You grew up? Pastor's son. Pastor's son. Well, that's an operation right there, anyhow. Amen. But, uh, so I was a non-Christian home. I, I was the first one to come to the Lord. It's an 18-year-old Marine, brought the breadcrumbs home. But you grew up in a Christian home, and there's going to be a whole different set of life experiences right there. I'm firstborn. You are? Second. Second. Oh, you're the second. Oh, yeah. Yeah, middle child. We know about them. Amen. All right. My personality, alpha male. Step aside, make it wide. I'm not sure. Alpha. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. Good. Yeah, we're the ones that get something done. So <laughs> we run over people if they get in the way, but we'll get something done. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. And I did find out your heritage. I'm German. You're Pole. Yes, sir. Polish. Yes, sir. Oh, man. Amen. Yeah, okay. A lot of differences is what I'm saying. And, you know, as we go through life, but Michael and I, we really shouldn't have a lot in common. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be spending time seeking each other out. And yet here we are at the house of God on a Tuesday night. We're spending time together. You say, well, man, nothing in common. What happened? Well, one day Michael trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. How old were you? Uh, five. Five. And at the age of 18, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I took a knee and entered the house of the faith. And the instant we did that, suddenly we had a common bond, his name the Lord Jesus Christ. We're singing the same song. We're heading to the same heaven. We're just sinners saved by grace. Where we would have just passed each other by, now we're actually seeking each other out almost every day while I'm in town, spending time together in, a, in the house of God. And we enter into, as fellow brothers, we enter into fellowship, which is a face-to-face -face relationship. We've got something to talk about because we have someone in common. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right? Now stay there. You can sit down if you want because I'm going to note something. But here's what happens. As we grow in grace and knowledge, we should move into another relationship. Look in Philippians chapter 2 and look at what's said here. The Apostle Paul notes that relationship. He says, yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, a fellow brother, number one, but watch this, and companion in labor. Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow brother. But then he refers to him, second of all, as a fellow laborer. This is a unique relationship. As fellow brothers, we're face-to-face. -face. We enjoy fellowship. We enjoy social communication. We talk about the Lord. Amen? But as we grow in the 
grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we should add to that relationship a second one. We should become fellow laborers. And fellow laborers, turn and look that way, they go side by side. They're in the harness, yoked together, plowing ground and laboring for the Lord. Amen? Fellow brothers and sisters are face to face. But as we grow, we should become fellow laborers and add to that relationship a side-by-side -side relationship as well. All right, that's all I need. Thank you, Brother Michael. Appreciate it. Big help. As we move into this thought tonight, I want to be sure everybody has a handout. Pastor, welcome aboard. Good to have you. We, uh, we took a lot of votes in your absence, and it's been good, all right? And so... And somebody already has the vase. It's already gone. The vase. It's already gone, brother. And uh, no, I'm teasing. I am teasing. And uh, I want to go ahead. Go to Matthew with me. And look at Matthew chapter 11 as we set this thought up tonight. You know, you and I should recognize that as a believer, fellowship is not the only relationship we enjoy with one another and with the Lord. We should recognize he also calls us to be fellow laborers. Look what's said in Matthew, Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 28. Jesus Christ is speaking here. And listen to what he says in Matthew 11 and verse 28. He says this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what's his promise? What's the word? Rest. Look up for just a moment. <clears throat> you know, right there is usually all the further I hear somebody read. They just don't even go through the next two verses. And notice, though, what he says, and this is interesting. He goes on to say this, Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Look at what he says. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Wow. You know, as you begin this thought, the first thing you need to recognize, according to that text, is the Christian life, the Christian walk, is not yoke-free. Amen? Notice that? In fact, uh, the day you were saved, you exchanged the yoke of sin and you exchanged the yoke of selfishness for the yoke of service. And you couldn't serve him until you got saved, frankly, because your God was self. That's all you lived for. You used him to serve you. You didn't serve him. Amen? It was all about getting your will fulfilled, not his. And we notice here, and American Christianity misses this, the Christian life is not yoke and burden free. Second of all, there's an incredible need for laborers. We're not into the notes yet. I'm just setting the message up here. Look at Matthew 9, just a page or two earlier. In Matthew chapter 9, look with me. Jesus Christ, in verse 37, is looking at the need. He's looking at the harvest. And notice what he says in verse 37 of Matthew 9. He says, then saith he unto his disciples. Now he's talking to his children. He's talking to those who belong to him. The harvest truly is plenteous. But the, say that word with me, laborers are few. And notice the prayer request. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Do you know tonight there's an incredible need for laborers? You know what we don't have a shortage of? Broken homes. 
We got no shortage of sinfulness and sinful living in America. We got no shortage of lost people in America. I'll tell you, but it's about being surrounded on all sides. Man, you shoot in any direction, hit a lost person, y'all with me? I mean, you say, who needs the Lord? Man, practically everybody I meet is unsaved. There's no shortage of lost people. There's no shortage of sin. There's no shortage of broken marriages. There's no shortage of filthiness and weakness. The shortage today is laborers that are willing to go out and meet the need. And the Lord doesn't pray for the harvest. We do, but he doesn't. He prays for laborers. You know, you got, anybody here have a lost relative, lost friend? Just raise your hand. You say, I got someone who's not saved. You know, yeah, pray for God to speak to their heart, but why don't you pray for somebody they work with to win their heart? Why don't you pray for somebody in their sphere of influence that, that is near them, that, that can not only win their heart, but get an opportunity to go ahead and deal with them about the gospel and model Jesus Christ and befriend them? Pray for that. And then you think about who you can be an answer to someone's prayer out there for who you're working with and who you're working around. Jesus never prayed for the harvest. That wasn't the shortage. The need was laborers. I wonder if that's true, and it is. Were you an answer to someone's prayer this week? Or did you just sit on your blessed assurance and let the world drift by and just get involved in your entertainment yourself? The shortage tonight has never been the harvest. There's a pile of need out there. The shortage tonight is laborers to go out into that harvest. And yet today, could I say this? As I travel America, Christianity is becoming a spectator sport. Even as you look at this message tonight, even as we finish tonight, some of you are going to say, great job. And here's how we do it. We are so entertainment-oriented as believers, as Americans. We bring that whole philosophy right into the local church. And here's how you're looking at this service tonight. I'm the actor. That's how you're thinking. I'm the actor. You're the audience. God's the prompter. And at the end of this deal, you're going to tell me what kind of job I did as the preacher and if a message stirred your heart or not. That is not how the house of God works in the kingdom of heaven. I'm the prompter. God's the audience, and he's watching to see if you, as the actors, are going to do something with what you hear preached. You see, tonight, every truth I share and every truth I've shared doesn't make you spiritual. It only makes you accountable. In fact, after this night is over and you decide you're just going to go ahead and Enjoy fellowship, never really get involved in the things of God. It'd be better if you never, ever heard the message tonight because more is going to be expected from you after this night is over. So here we go. Let me say this as, as an experience I had years ago in Alaska. I was working as assistant pastor, and, and most all of my ministry other than eight months was as a lay minister. I worked a full-time job, had a sales crew of about 43 individuals, it was busy burning the candle at both ends. It's not for everybody. But I enjoyed it. I just, for whatever reason, I was wired that way. And then I got into evangelism 19 years ago. But I remember one day I was sitting in my pastor's office. Is it hot in here? Is it warm? Somebody raise your hand. You say it's warm. Okay, that's too much. Okay, with your permission, pastor. All right. Down to 54 degrees it goes. <laughs> yeah, Carrie Nance. That's how Brother Nance does it. 
He puts that sucker in about 55 degrees. No one falls asleep in Terry Nance's church. <laughs> but I'm sitting in the office and talking to my pastor, and the phone rings. And I could only hear one side of the conversation, but very quickly I began to figure out what was going on. Some family had moved into the area, and they were asking my pastor a series of questions, and I could tell by his answer what the questions were. What do you have for families? What does your church have for young people? What does your church have for uh, uh, teenagers? They were asking questions, and I guess I wasn't spiritual that day. I felt like picking the phone and going, Hey, what is your church? What do you have for us? But we're in a day-to-day as welfare mentality. What do you have for me? I'm coming here. You're giving to me. Hey, 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 it doesn't work that way. You get saved. You and I were set free not to go ahead and serve sin, but to serve the Savior. Amen? Now, I want to go move into these thoughts. You have a little handout. As we consider this thought of laboring together with the Lord, there's three principles individually you want to own. You want to walk out of here tonight and go, wow, I am going to make those principles a part of my Christian life. But second of all, I want to look at three principles that ought to govern your local church tonight in the area of laboring and serving for the Lord. Principle number one, go to Matthew chapter 20, and notice what Jesus Christ tells us about serving and laboring for him. Principle number one is found in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse number 25. Now, we need to set the stage. What's the setting here? Jesus Christ is explaining to his disciples and he's telling them about his upcoming death, burial, and resurrection. Tell me that's not a weighty moment, amen? So reason he came. And what is his brood doing? What are the disciples doing? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest when they get to heaven. You tell me they weren't a bunch of Baptists, amen? I mean, he's talking about his coming passion and, 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 and their salvation, and they're arguing about who's going to be the big boy in heaven. That's ridiculous. So he quiets his brood, and listen to what he says here in verse 25. And Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Here is principle number one when it comes to laboring and serving together with the Lord and with one another. It's this. Write it in. True greatness, according to our Savior, is not measured by how many serve you, but it is measured by how many you serve. Isn't that powerful? You know, the very first principle of service tonight, true greatness, it's not measured by how many serve you. It's measured by how many you serve. Why do I have to even say this? Because America is not a nation of servants. We are a nation of people that expect to be served. We go to the restaurant and we want good service. We don't want to order messed up. We go on vacation, they're serving me. Let me tell you, Filipinos are a nation of servants. Could I just get an amen on there? Could I get an Anybody ever met some Filipinos? I'm telling you, they serve. They love every second of it. Some third world people, they're nations of servants. But not America. Americans expect to be served. Let me say this. But in the kingdom of heaven, we're servants. Amen? And our nation and our identity should never be America first. It ought to be heaven first. Amen? We're a child of that country. It's a heavenly country, and it's even a better country than America. 
Amen. It is. It's eternal. Amen. You got a problem with that? You got a major spiritual problem. Yeah. And though America may not be a nation of servants, the kingdom of heaven is. And you don't need to pause for a second and get this thing turned around. True greatness isn't how many serve you and wait on you. True greatness, according to our Savior, is how many you serve. Principle one. Principle two. Look at the second one. Go to Galatians chapter 5. There's a second principle in the Word of God concerning serving and laboring for the Lord. Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, in verse number 13, one of my very first memory verses, and I've always said whenever I come to this text, this is the most perfect three-part sermon you could ever get in a single verse, and I've never preached it in my life. This is incredible. Listen to it. Galatians 5, 13 says this, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. That's your salvation. The day you were saved, you were set free. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. He didn't set you free from the penalty of sin so you could serve sin. But by love, what's the next word? Serve one another. Ooh, there is principle number two. Principle number two is this. You were saved to serve. Write that in there. You were saved to serve. Could I say what you weren't saved? You weren't saved to sin. Amen? Amen. Y'all with me? You weren't, he didn't save you so you could now sin and not worry about the penalty of your sin. You, he, you were not saved to sit. You write that one down. You weren't saved to be served. In fact, the day you got saved, that was your service. You got more than you deserved the day he saved you from your sin. Yeah. Principle two is clearly this. You and I were saved to serve. Principle three. Go back to Matthew 20. We find a third personal principle. Not only the principle of true greatness in the area of service, not only the thought that you and I were saved to serve, but watch this in Matthew chapter 20, and this one probably chases me harder than any of these three principles I just gave you. In Matthew chapter 20, here is the, the thought. Notice Jesus Christ saying this in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 20. He says, but it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be, we miss this, Look at that next word. What's it say? Let him be what? Your. Notice he's pointing to someone else. Let him be your minister, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be, there it is again, your servant. Boy, this third principle, it gets me every time. Here's what it is. You cannot serve the Lord without serving others. Oh, boy. You cannot serve the Lord without serving others. You can sing to the Lord without singing with others. You can worship the Lord without worshiping with others. You all with me? You can't serve the Lord without serving others. Go to Matthew 25 and watch the proof text. Watch this, how the Lord uh, nails this right down in Matthew chapter 25. Look at what he says here. In Matthew 25, he says this in verse number 34. Matthew 25 and verse 34. He says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now watch this. For I was in hunger, ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me drink. 
I was a stranger. You took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Look at what the righteous say in verse 37. They're incredulous. Then shall the righteous answer and say, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee or thirsty gave thee drink? The stranger took thee in naked and clothed thee sick and in prison and came unto thee. Look at what the Lord says in verse 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, and as much as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Wow. You know, in this area of individual service and labor for the Lord, this second relationship we ought to enjoy with one another and with Him, it is a spiritual impossibility to serve the Lord without serving others. Now, if that's true, and it is, how'd you serve the Lord today? That's a thought, isn't it? I remember this moment in my ministry in Alaska. I was assistant pastor, and this moment came. We had seen Jack and Stephanie Bass come to the Lord. Jack was a rod buster out of Texas. He lived a very wicked life, a Harley rider. He joined the Air Force, retired as out of the Air Force, and Jack had tats all over the place. I'm just telling you, he was a rough guy. I'm telling you, I'll tell you this. Very few people know this, but Jack's goal when he was a young man was to mess up the preacher's daughter, and he did, and she never recovered from it. And he would weep as he would tell me how wicked he was. He lived for everyone but the true and living God. But later in life, Jack and Stephanie got saved. And Deb and I were given the responsibility of discipling them. And we discipled many a family at our kitchen table on Friday nights. But I remember about four or five months in, one Wednesday night, Jack wasn't there. I didn't think much of it. I figured he was working OT somewhere over time. But on Sunday morning, he didn't show. And I asked Steph very quickly. And she said, oh, just, you know, she said something. But Sunday night, he wasn't there either. And I remember pulling Steph aside and said, hey, what's up with Brother Jack? And she said, Brother Dave, just pray for him. He's behind in the cutting of the wood. You know, all we do is burn wood up here in, in our house over in Palmer, in Alaska. And, and he just feels he doesn't have enough in for the next two, three weeks. He's just, he just going to go ahead and cut wood. And he, he promised him that he'll get back to the house of God, but he's just laying out for about three weeks to cut wood. Now, I've been around the horn a few times. And I've learned a long time ago the habits you develop right after you get saved will carry you a lot further and they go a lot longer. And that was just a big, huge flag, big, giant flag. Man, I knew the Scripture verses, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. I felt like that, and Jack ought to hear a good sermon, but the Spirit of God wouldn't let me do it. i never forget what happened. Saturday morning comes along. I set my alarm clock for 0600. That fired off, and I got up early. Did a little bit of a Bible reading, got my teeth brushed. And instead of wearing what I'm wearing tonight, I got into what I wore all my life as a young boy in Minnesota. Got the blue jeans on, the flannel shirt, my leather gloves, work boots. Went and got my steel chainsaw, double-checked all the oil, put it in the back of my pickup truck. Went ahead and added extra mix and more oil. And drove that 20 minutes, 25 minutes over to Jack's house. I pulled up probably about 7 o'clock in the morning. I knew Jack would be nursing a cup of coffee. He would have slipped into his overalls. He only had two sets. He had a church set, and he had a work set. 
That's how Jack was. His best and cleanest he wore to church. His other ones was when he was working out there at the ranch, at the farm. And I remember I show up at 7 o'clock, and old brother Jack, he meets me at the door, and he's brother Dave. He got that Texas drop. Brother Dave, what y'all doing here? Big guy, big guy, like a Paul Bunyan. I said, well, brother Jack, I heard you're a little behind in wood. I've been missing you. In the house of God, I thought I'd just come over and help you out today. And for the next 10, 12 hours, man, we dropped trees, we limbed them, we cut wood. We went ahead, grabbed a little bite to eat, and went back to work. About 8, 8.30 that night, we had a little supper. Stephanie's just beaming ear to ear. She never said a word. I never said a word. And I said, well, Brother Jack, I hope that was a help. He has never missed a church service for over 25 years. People don't give a rip how much you know. They don't care how much you know until they first know how much you care. Isn't that what got our heart with our Savior? He didn't just go preach doctrine. He went and died for us. Amen. He became a servant. He humbled himself and became a servant even unto death, the death of the cross. That's what got my heart. It wasn't what he said. It's what he did. Look around. You say, but I got need, preacher. You may have need, but others around you do too. And I'm going to tell you, you've never tasted joy till you become a servant. You never really lived as a believer till you start being a servant for nothing but just the joy of serving and representing the greatest servant who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, tonight, true greatness isn't measured by how many serve you. True greatness is measured by how many you serve. And the day you were saved, you were saved to serve, and you cannot serve the Lord without serving others. You want to watch the Holy Spirit of God revolutionize your Christianity, you take those three, three thoughts. If you're saved tonight, you take those three thoughts and ask Him to bury them in your heart and just bring fruit. It'll change your Christian life. You know who we are? We complain because we don't have this, that, and the other. We're discontented, unsatisfied people. Service takes all of that away. I complained because I had no shoes, and then I met a man who had no feet. There's always somebody out there you could serve. Amen? Amen. I don't care who you are. You could help the elderly ladies, Em. You could help the elderly ladies coming over there and cleaning their house. Y'all with me? Uh, you could help mow lawns. I don't care if you're a youngin'. You can help mow lawns. Somebody, somebody needs their lawn mowed. Y'all with me? I'm just telling you. <laughs> I mean, if we had two signs here and one sign said wanting to be served and then we had another sign over here that says wanting to serve and you sign up to where you want, I'm going to tell you right now, that'd be a full one. But here's the problem. If we come in here tonight and all we want to do is give, you'll bust the bank. We don't have enough to go around. But if all you want to do is give, there will always be a need for that. Which line you lining up in tonight? Which one you want to be in? Which one are you in? You and I were saved to serve. Amen? Yeah. I tell you, that's where the joy is. I got illustration after illustration beyond Jack. I'm telling you, that revolutionized my Christianity when I decided I would be a giver, not a taker. I'd be a servant, not one expecting to be served. It changed my Christian life. But second of all, I want to look in this area, Epaphroditus, a fellow laborer, not only individual. I want to look at three principles of service tonight that ought to guide and govern you in your local church. 
Those of you that are members here, and maybe we have some among us who are members somewhere else, these principles now apply. Principle number one we find in Romans chapter 12. Go there with me. Don't miss this. It's not a lengthy thought, but it's a good one. Look at what's said in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 4. In Romans 12 and verse number 4, notice what's said here. He says, for as we have many members in one body... Now, the body he's talking about isn't the body of believers, all right? Let me just tell you, that's not the body of believers. That's the family of God. He's talking about a local church assembly body. That's what he's, the context is here. And let me tell you something. In the New Testament, when you read about the church and you read about the body, you need to understand the context it's given. Everybody thinks every time you see church, it's everybody who's saved. No, it's not. In fact, if you take local church out of the New Testament, it doesn't make sense. Let your women keep silence in church. Oh, that is actually a good thought. That means as soon as a woman gets saved, the church, everybody who's saved, now she can't talk. That's a good thought, actually. <laughs> See, it don't work. It doesn't hunt. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Amen. I'm giving you some good doctrine tonight. And so he's talking about a local assembly here. And notice what's said in verse 4. This local assembly, this body of believers tonight gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. Watch verse 6, having been, what's that word? Gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us. And then he lists the gifts. Prophecy which is preaching. That's the context. Study it out. I'm just cutting the chase. You don't have to go into all the, all the study. Preaching. Ministry, verse 7. Teaching in verse... Do you know teaching is a gift? Not everybody can teach. Look at what he says in verse 8. He that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth. Giving is a gift. I was a businessman. I know that. That money wasn't mine. That was the Lord's. It was meant to establish His covenant, His kingdom, not mine. He goes on to speak of ruling and showing mercy. Here's the takeaway. I just cut to the chase. We do serve a gift-giving God. And according to grace, this is what you need to recognize. In the local church, write this out. Everyone is what? A gifted individual. Recognize that tonight. In this local church tonight, if you're saved, you've been scripturally baptized, and the Spirit of God has added you to this assembly, you're a gifted individual. You're a gifted part of this assembly. Amen? He, God gifted you things to be used in investing in the lives of others in this assembly. Now, there are some gifts God doesn't want. I remember hearing the pastor one time preach a message, and at the end of the message, he preached a message on using your gifts for the Lord. And he said, let's have the congregation stand in a line, and I'm going to go ahead, and you whisper in my ear what you think your gift is that God has given you. And I'll pray with you. And so one at a time, they came up and began to whisper, giving, teaching, exhorting. I'm an exhorter. I'm an encourager. And then suddenly this one elderly lady, she came up. She said, Pastor, I believe that I have the gift of criticism. <laughs> oh, the pastor said, my dear sister, is that true? Yes, that's true, my pastor. 
Well, he said, then, my dear sister, I would suggest and recommend that you do with that gift what the man of the New Testament did with his. She said, what's that? Go out and bury it. Amen? I'm going to tell you, some of us have talents, abilities, and gifts that we learned well in our B.C. days before Christ. Those aren't the ones God gave you. Those are the ones the devil gave you. Bury them. Amen? Bury them. What God gives, those are the ones he wants you to invest. And everybody here is a gifted individual. I don't care who you are. You're a member of this church. God has you here, and he's given you gifts, talents, and abilities, and he's gifted you to invest in his kingdom and in his cause. Amen? Amen. Number one, principle number two. Here's the second one I find. Go to 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. Look at what's said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In the local church, as we consider this fellow laborers being co-laborers together with the Lord and with one another, now in the ministry and service of the local church, we find a second principle. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 14. Listen to what's said here in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. He says, for the body is not one member, but many. Look up for just a moment. And he's talking about a physical body here, and he's relating it to a local church body. Do you know in your physical body you have more than one member? Do you know you have more than one body part? Did you know that? <laughs> you know, unless it's Monsters, Inc., you know, one eye. That's all you see in Monsters, Inc., just a big eyeball. You know what I'm saying? But it, it, just your bones alone, what, 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 phlebotomist, 206, 208, I, you know, something in there. Y'all with me? There's a lot of parts in a body, and there's a lot of different body parts in a church. Amen? This church isn't just one body part. There are multiple body parts. Notice what he goes on to say. 1 Corinthians 12, he says this in verse 18, But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. You know what that tells me? Church membership isn't even your choice. It's his. He determines where you're to be to be a functioning body part now that you're saved. Verse 21, And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Look at verse 22, Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are still necessary. Wow, here's principle two. This is a big one. You ready for this? Concerning your local church, if you're saved, you've been scripturally baptized and added to a local church, could be this one, could be another one, in that body, here's what you need to recognize. Every part has a purpose. In a body, every part has a purpose. Amen? In your physical body, every part is there with purpose. There's no vestigial organs, like the evolutionists will say, some purposeless part that's a result of evolution, like it had no purpose, and so it's just hanging there, just, there's nothing, there's no purpose, it's a vestigial organ. Let me tell you something. I do not believe that there are vestigial members in a local church. Don't believe it. You're saved, scripturally baptized, and added to a local church. You've been set there as a part in a body, and there as a part you have purpose. You ready for this? This is tough. 
but I'm going to ask the questions tonight. Those of you that are a member of this church, if in a body every part has a purpose, what's yours? What's yours? You say, I'm visiting, I'm not a member of this church. Okay, in your local church, what's your part? Could I ask you, if you left your local church right now, would a ministry falter? If you left your local church right now, would your absence be felt? Could the body just keep and the church just keep operating, functioning smoothly without you? And if it could, your absence would never be felt. The body would just operate smoothly once you leave. Wouldn't change a thing. You wouldn't leave a hole. I'm going to be very, very direct. If you're a member of this church, then what are you doing here? Why are you here? You know what? If I lost a big toe, it doesn't look like much, but if I lost a big toe, its absence would be felt. It would change how I walk all the time. I would notice and I would miss it. Why? Because it had a part. It had a purpose. It was part of the, the bigger scheme of the whole thing. And it, even though it didn't look like much, man, when it was gone, it was missed because it was functioning as a body part. I'll never forget this moment. Pastor, you may know some of the players. My daughter Kimberly called me about six years ago. They'd been in a good-sized ministry. She'd been the fourth-grade teacher for about seven or eight years. She'd gotten married, and the Spirit of God was moving her and her husband to a, consider another work. It was a little further from the area they were in. She called me. She said, Dad, pray for Peter and I. We're <clears throat> trying to consider the Lord's will and what church he would want us to be a part of. I'll keep you posted. I said, sounds good. Next week she called. A couple weeks later, she said, Dad, we've narrowed it down to two. These are the two churches, and we need your prayer. I said, well, what are the two churches? She said, well, one church is a church of about 200. A pile of young families just like ours. All kinds of music. My daughter's a concert pianist. Pierre, her husband, is a concert violinist. You ought to hear those two get together. They'll make you weep. I'm telling you, too, they'll make you cry listening to them just play the hymns and the things of God. She said, uh, one of the church of over 200, a lot of young families like ours, great teaching, preaching, it's alive. And the other one, a pastor and his wife have just taken just a couple years ago. It's small, can't be more than maybe 20, 25 people. It's just a pile of need there, not a lot of young families, but we just see need. And, and Dad, first of all, what advice would you give? And I said, Kimbers, you know how I raised you and Mom and I raised you. You find a need and go meet it. You don't sit, you serve. You leave something in better condition and you find it. Amen? That's just old school, but that's right. So he said, well, we'll be praying. I said, we'll be praying. You let me know what you and Pierre decide. About a week later, she calls. She said, Dad, Pierre and I, I think we made the decision. I said, well, what happened? What decision? She said, well, let me tell you this first. We were sitting at the church, Pastor Bishop, Alexandria, Virginia, right off Baptist. They were sitting there with him. Got the church a couple hundred. It's firing on every cylinder. A bunch of young families. He's a great teacher, by the way. And, uh, she said uh, we were talking to him and shared our heart with him. Pastor Bishop, Brother Bishop, this is what we consider your work of his, and this is what he said to us, and he just made it so easy. He said, you know, Pierre and Kimberly, we want you. We really want you. 
But that church over there, they need you. I know what that pastor said goodbye to. Pierre knocks down almost 100 grand a year. And they're not just men. They're tithers and givers and mission supporters. They're servants. He coughed up a concert pianist. He, he, chased, he let go a concert pianist, a concert violinist. I'm just telling you, I know what that pastor said no to, and he did too. Boy, you've got to love a guy who's more about the kingdom than his camp. Amen? Amen. I mean, that just, y'all with me? That just gets my heart. They've been duking it out there and working hard. That work is just slowly growing. I'm going to have a, by the way, that's the church that's hosting the first ever Marine Corvette and Chick-fil-A outreach in Washington, D.C. I'll be doing an outreach for them in about a month. We'll finally have our car back up, snuffed, and ready to roll. They've had a trickle of families join. It's starting to take hold six years after they joined. You know, you weren't saved to sit. You weren't saved to be served. You were saved to serve. And in a body, every part has purpose. Members here, what's yours? The very first principle of service that we find concerning your local church, the Spirit of God has added to you. And by the way, let me throw this out for free. You'll never be a mature Christian firing on every cylinder like you should be and everything God wants you to be outside of the local church. I was sitting in Prescott, Arizona three months ago, flew in for a meeting, sitting at a Einstein Brothers Bagels. I like the bagel and coffee shop. I found that good one up in New Bremen, that uh, coffee. Thank you, sis. <laughs> I've, I've dropped some coin on that one the last couple of mornings. That's good stuff. Good coffee. Man, I had a good time passing out tracks to them, too. I'm sitting in Prescott, and I see a father and a, a mother, and they got uh, four kids, two, two teenage boys, two little girls. I thought, what? They look like they're homeschooling. They were. I came by. I said, hey, keep it up, man. That's good stuff. You know, and then he came by to see me. We talked for a little bit. He was saved, been saved for a number of years, very sweet-spirited man. And he called me the next day, and he said, could we meet? I'd like to meet with you. I got some spiritual questions. I said, sure. And so we met back at Einstein Brothers Bagels, and uh, we sat down, and he said, here's where I am. He said, I've been saved for 18 years, but I've never been a member of a local church. Why should I join a local church? I said, well, tell me about your experiences. I've had bad experiences with churches. You know, I've had some bad things happen, and I just, I, I don't want to be a part of a local church because I just had bad things happen. I said, let me ask you a question. How were you raised? What kind of home were you in? He said, well, I had a bad home. I had a really bad home. Bad things happened. I said, could I see your hand again? Oh, a wedding ring. Really interesting. You grew up in a bad home, and you saw a bad marriage, but you still decided to get married. Why is that? He says, because home is the institution the Lord ordained. I said, well, fancy that. Even though you had a bad one, you had the good sense to know that you don't just shack up and go ahead and whore around, that marriage is honorable and all, and you got married. He said, yes, sir, that's an ordained institution. Well, praise the Lord. I said, do you know the local church is too? Amen. And just because you had a bad experience doesn't mean you blow off a God-ordained institution in your Christian life. He looked at me, and I'll never forget, he says, I can't argue with that. <laughs> and a teachable spirit. Amen? I don't have time to go into a study. We'll be here all night. 
But when you got born again, just like when you got physically born, God didn't just throw you out on the street and said, figure it out. He had an institution called a home to raise you up and bring you to maturity physically, to guard you, to protect you, teach you how to forgive, teach you how to get along with people that are hard to get along with. Amen? That's family. And when you got born again, he had a home for you, too. It's called a local church. Amen. He wants you to grow up in this Jesus Christ. He gives gifts to that local church, pastors, evangelists, teachers, etc. You with me? God's a gift-giving God. For what? To mature the saint till we come into the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ and not be blown about with every wind and doctrine. Local church is God's ordained spiritual institution for spiritual babies to grow up. Amen? Amen. You'll never grow up in Jesus until you have a local church. You say, but they're a bunch of messed up people. Yeah, you are too. Yeah. If you find a local church, don't join it because it's no longer, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. Amen? You've got issues too. That is God's, this is God's ordained institution. Amen? I'm just throwing out freebies. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Your pastor's looking so sweet now. All right? But let me just tell you, notice this second principle in the body, every part has a purpose. What's yours? You ought to be a functioning body part if you're saved in a local assembly. Amen? Amen? And if you left, your absence should be felt. And then thirdly, I just wrote it out. Little is much when God is in it. You see that? Two things I want to say. Number one, don't miss your ministry. Write that down. As a believer in this local church, don't miss your ministry tonight by trying to be someone else. God's only got one you. God's only got one me. And there, my wife would probably say, praise the Lord. One was enough. You with me? And I'm going to say this. I can't do your ministry the way God calls you to do it. But you can't do my ministry the way God has called me to do it. Uniquely, we're all individually different. And don't miss your ministry by trying to be somebody else. Amen? Be you. But second of all, I close with this. Don't minimize your ministry by comparing it to someone else. Oh, I see it all the time. I get to travel. I get to churches as small as 10 people and as many as 14 or 1,500. I can be in a big city church and a little country church. Every week changes. You never know what's going to happen. But if I've seen it once and heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. I'll come into a church and I'll be talking to somebody and Maybe I'll say to one of the dear ladies there, what, what's, what's your ministry here in the local church? And this is what I hear. Oh, I, I just do the nursery. Just do the nursery? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I'm just going to tell you, just, that's a pet offensive in Vietnam. Are you kidding me? These, these, these kids are monsters today. And it's not the kids, just trust me, the, the kids haven't changed, it's the parents that have changed, they're creating the monsters that we deal with. That's a whole other message. It's exhausting. Dads want to just reason with a four-year-old. Yeah, I reasoned, it was called a willow switch, it got the message through quick. Don't get me started, I want to stay on track here, okay? Stay on the target. But just keep nursery. 
sis, I can't do that the way you do it. I mean, if I switch places with you, I'd have a jail ministry. I'm telling you, duct tape, bailing wire, I'm telling you, you'd be reading about me. I can't. I'd have them little suckers Velcroed to the wall. I'd have super glue out. I'm telling you. You'd be reading about me. I can't do that ministry. Yeah, God never equipped me to do that. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and see, here you go. You, I mean, I ju- I'm just this, or I'm just the visitation leader, or I'm just the song leader. Are you kidding me? Why do you, with that little word just, make your body part feeble when it's still necessary? Amen. Amen. Shame on you. Because everybody is somebody in the body. Watch this. Go to Matthew 25, and I'm almost done. Promise, I'm almost done. Go to Matthew 25, and watch this. Actually, go to 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians. Stay there. 1 Corinthians 12. Look at what's said here in verse number 21. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Look at verse 22. Nay, much more those members of the body, look at this, which seem. They, they seem to be feeble. They don't look that important. Not like the pastor. He looks important. Someone else says, well, but I just. Notice, they're still necessary. Amen? Watch this in Matthew. Watch this. Matthew 25. What a fascinating little section here that ties in with this. Go to Matthew. I told my wife tonight as I was studying and praying and just getting ready. I said, Matthew's just chock full of labor and servant principles this, this thought of being a fellow laborer in the household of Epaphroditus. Look at this in Matthew 25. Look at what he says in verse 14. Matthew 25, verse 14. We're almost done tonight. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. You got your pen ready? You want to just jot down some things that you go, wow. In those two verses, look at what's there. First of all, the people being spoken of were his own servants. Amen? If you're saved, you're now a servant of this king who's traveled to a far country. Amen? He deals with his servants. But second of all, he gave them his goods. Not someone else's. Could I say tonight, whatever you have of any value tonight, that good and perfect gift came from above. Don't you think you're something special because God gifted you with a voice and somebody else doesn't have it. God gifted you with money and somebody else doesn't have that much. God gifted you with the ability to teach. No, no, no. You have nothing but what God gave you. Amen. Amen. You're his servant. He gives you his goods. Amen? Amen? Everybody with me? Point number three I find in our text is this. These responsibilities were given according to their abilities. Sometimes I go to West Coast Leadership uh, uh, Conference, Paul Chapel's over in California. I'll bring men in under the Gary Pritz Memorial Missions Fund. And I'm going to tell you, I t- here's what I tell them when they show up. I said, first of all, you're going to be incredibly encouraged. And then the second half, you're going to be incredibly discouraged. Because you're going to look and say, I could never do that. And I want you to understand something. You're right, you probably can't. You're a different servant than Paul Chapel. Don't try to be Paul Chapel. Be you. Amen? I tell them that. I tell these, these you say, why? Because abilities or, or the talents are given to abilities. That's what we call useful load. Amen? 
Sometimes we get enamored with just the big ministry. Shame on us. Do you know tonight, you know what useful load is? Who are my pilots? Anybody a pilot? Anybody an aviator? Useful load is what that aircraft is designed to carry. You know what the useful load of a 747 is? 248,000 pounds. That's over 50 automobiles. See, that's impressive, isn't it? You everybody know what a Piper Super Cub is? Little front seat, back seat, little mosquito, right? You know what the useful load of a Piper Super Cub is? 767 pounds. That's it. Can't even hit a thousand. Just 767. And everybody goes, oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> but you know there's some things the Super Cub can do that 47 can't? For instance, you never want to crop dust with a 747. Because <laughs> you now have picked and shelled it all at the same time, roasted it, and popped it. All in one fell swoop. Y'all with me? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Y'all with me? You got that, didn't you, Brother Jeremy? All right? I mean, there's some things the Super Cub can do. The 747 can't. It, it's useful load. Do you know a Super Cub running at 800 pounds is much more efficient and is, is being more, more used than a 747 running at 100,000 pounds? Because a 47 is less than half full, and the Super Cub is loaded to the limit. See, I don't know what your abilities are, but God will gift you talents according to your abilities. And notice here, write this down. I notice in this parable, the amount was not the issue. The five, the two, and the one was not the focus. Amen? You see, because no servant was given nothing. Wait for it. But one servant did nothing with what he was given. I'm going to say that again. Not one of these servants was given nothing. But one of them did nothing with what he was given. And you know what happened when he did that? God said, you take that talent that he should have invested in my cause, and you go give it to the one who has the five. You know, we have a little saying, when God gifts you with talents and abilities, you have to, if you don't use it, you will lose it. You're here for such a time as this tonight. You remember this local church. God has gifted you with abilities and talents and resources to invest in lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's all about him. And you're going to bury it in the earth, and you're going to hide it in yourself. You're going to go ahead and say, you know, I could sing, but I'm not going to. God will get a singer up there in place of you. You with me? You say, man, I'm not going to give. I'm, I'm not going to go give. God's blessed me. God will put something. God's kingdom doesn't wait on you. Esther was told, hey, you could be here for such a cause as this. And if you don't step up, don't worry. Deliverance will come from another area. God's design is always fulfilled. The privilege is we get to be a part of it. Amen. Amen. Amen? You have to have a servant's heart to see it that way. Here in Matthew 25, we see the Lord wants us to invest our resources that he's entrusted to us. 
And as I close tonight, go back to 1 Corinthians 12. I'll close with this. Notice in 1 Corinthians 12, he says it. He says it so well. In this area of ministering for the Lord in your local church, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and notice what he says in verse number 22, Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble, they are still necessary. They're necessary. You know, as I close tonight, I wish you'd come back to me, back up to Alaska with me. We'll be up next year. But there's a little church family. We had about, when we got there, we had 19 members, I think is all we had in the church. And Deb and I joined that little work. There were other churches we could have gone to, but as we joined that ministry, following a ministry, a church plant we'd started, we, we just saw a need and we stepped in. I never asked for a single ministry. I thought the Spirit of God will give me ministries as leadership sees them. Within a year, I was song leader, and then within a month or two after that, I was the adult Sunday school teacher, and pretty soon I had about seven ministries in that local church. At the time, I was a businessman, so we were able to help financially in a great way. And that little church on the backside of nowhere, there came this incredible day where we went over to the frontage road between Palmer and Wasilla, Alaska, and we built a 500000 land property, $500,000 uh, auditorium property, everything, cash on the barrel with about 60 or 70 of us had grown to about that point. We had a bunch of little nobodies. And boy, did the Lord get a lot of glory. We saw people saved and ministry begin to move ahead. It's right now under the ministry of Pastor Carden. And Pastor Carden, uh, they're now averaging over 100, 105 uh, every week. It just keeps going. But I wish you could visit that church because there's a, there's a body part in that church that just seems so feeble. In fact, when you look at him, he's not much to look at. He, he doesn't even look like there's a thing he could do to make a difference. His name, Paul Sparts. Paul Sparts is a Down syndrome boy. The day Paul's mom and dad found out they were going to have a Down syndrome child, Paul's dad divorced Judy, went to Minnesota, fled the scene, couldn't handle having a handicapped kid, and left and blew the marriage and went south. Paul was raised by Judy up there, and when you look at Paul, he ain't much to look at. I mean, <laughs> he looks like a dinged-up Super Cub man. He had a hard landing. He's got a bit of a wing missing and the props bent, but it's Paul. But be careful. Little is much when God is in it. But Paul has three incredible ministries to this day that will just grip your heart. You see, when you come to Manna Baptist Church, you will never get in that building without being greeted if Paul Sparks is there. He paces like a sentry. He's the official doorkeeper in the house of God. I remember the first time we came back to Alaska. We've been gone for a year preaching. And I, as we pulled into that parking lot with a motor home, I said, hey, is Paul on duty? And boy, all the kids, yep, he's there, Dad. I said, okay. Because see, Paul, if he knew you, he'd say, welcome to Manna Baptist Church, ma'am. And then he'd open the door and let you in. And if, if you were a guy, he'd say, welcome to Manna Baptist Church, sir. He'd open the door, but if he knew you, he'd give you the Paul Sparks chiropractic bear hug and reset your spine for you. <laughs> They're strong. I mean, those kids are strong. And so I told Deb, I said, tell Paul I'm coming, you know. And so, uh, or I told the kids, and they went ahead, and Paul, and then Deb and I come, and from a distance, he's, he's pacing all of a sudden, throw the day! 
Dave, he hadn't seen me for a year. Brother Dave, you know, we'd served together for eight years. Man, I come in, he grabs me, crunch, crackle, you know, rice, crispy time, pop, you know, and then he sets me down, never forget. He goes, look what coach gave you. Look what coach gave you. Now, coach was Pastor Watson, and he coached the boys' basketball team, and I could never break Paul of calling him coach. I say, he's pastor. Okay, he's pastor coach. Coach Pat. I could never break him, so I just gave up. He says, look what coach gave me. And there he had, sitting on his suit coat, he had this, this badge from Valley Trophy that said this. It said, Paul Sparks, doorkeeper, Man of Baptist Church. He wore that. Ministry number one from a feeble Down syndrome kid. Ministry number two, Wednesday nights, pastor would let Paul go ahead and take the offering. Got an offering plate anywhere? Got anywhere? I'll use this. I'll just use this, all right? He let Paul take the offering. So they go ahead and pray, and uh, then Paul would go and take the offering. Here's how Paul took the offering on Wednesday nights. He'd come over here like this. (laughs) It's an offering. You're supposed to put something in it. He'd wait for you to put something in it before he'd go to the next person. He'd go from person to person. I swear, I'm telling you, we got more on Wednesday nights than we did Sunday nights. Paul fleece them, man. He'd shame them. If, if you were a poor visitor and all you had was a $100 bill, he would shame you out of your $100 bill, I'm telling you. That was Paul's second ministry. See, man? Down syndrome, kid. We would have dismissed. Oh, so feeble. God said, no, I'm setting him here because you need him. He's necessary. But ministry three, oh, <laughs> that's the one that I've never gotten over. You see, because in all those years, those eight years we served, I was song leader, so I held the invitation while Pastor Watson, as he finished the, as they finished the sermon. When Paul Sparks was in the congregation, he was there Maybe missed one Sunday a year when he went down to see his dad. Man of Baptist Church never had an empty altar at invitation time. That music would get soft, and pastor would ask people to consider coming forward and getting some help. Paul Sparks would always come. It didn't matter what you preached on. You preached on being a good wife. Paul would come forward. <laughs> you preached on going ahead and being a preacher, and Paul would come forward. Preach on going ahead and going to the mission field. Paul, come forward. Y'all with me? They're tender-hearted. I think we're the ones that are handicapped. And he'd come forward, and when Paul would come forward, he, he'd do the same thing every time. Pastor would meet with him, and sometimes pastor couldn't. And so Paul, he'd, be, he'd go right down the middle there, and then he'd look up. He'd, be, he'd do this. He'd come down on one knee just like this. He'd put his hand to his forehead just like this. He'd pray a little bit, and then he'd look up. He wanted Coach to join him. And sometimes Coach couldn't. Sometimes Brother Dave had to. So I'd come around, and I'd put my arm around him. Pastor dealing with somebody. I'd say, hey, Paul, do you want to pray? Yes, sir, Brother Dave. I said, you go ahead and pray. This was his prayer every time. Dear God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving Mom. Please save Dad. I love you. I love Coach. I love Mom. Jesus name, Amen. I could lip sync the prayer with him. See, ah, it's not a big deal. I don't know. I've held a lot of invitations, thousands. I've watched people want to get help, but they're proud. 
They want to break the ice, you know, and come forward. And then the ice gets broken by a little Down syndrome boy. And it just made him easy to follow him forward. I've often wondered how much is on that kid's account because he wasn't too proud to take a knee and show the way. Oh, we band of brothers, we're all gone now. There's only a couple families left from the original crew. It's always how it goes. We're all ministering in different churches and ministries around the nation. But I remember a few years ago, we got back together, had us a little get-together. We all had to be in the state at the same time. We called for a Dutch treat, and all of us met over at the lodge at Lake, by Lake Wasilla. And all the guys treated their wives out, and we banded brothers. We reminisced on the days when God just took a bunch of nobodies, just a bunch of nobodies, and made his son so great in the hearts of so many. And guess who we talked about more than anybody else besides the Lord? A little Down syndrome boy that had no business serving. He should have been bitter. Daddy left him. He should have been the one saying, everybody owes me. I've had it bad. Just a little Down syndrome boy that wanted to be a body part in the greatest cause he could ever be in, the cause of the king. His hair's falling out in clumps now. He's a little over 50 years of age, got a third, third grade education. I hope he's alive. I'd like to see him one more time. We'll go up next year. And when I come to Manna, if he's still alive, oh, he'll be there, same blazer, same shirt, same trousers, Pacing like a sentry, the front of Man of Baptist Church, looking to greet. And I know if it happens to be Wednesday night, Paul will take the offering. He'll shake it out of him. <laughs> but I will guarantee you when that invitation happens, I'm going to watch that little body part come forward. And I'm going to wave Brother Cardin off. And I'm going to say, can I just pray with him one more time? His daddy died a couple years ago. Don't know if he ever got saved. If any kids' prayers ought to have been heard and then Paul's. But the heart's pretty hard, pretty proud. I hope he got in. But I want to say, little is much when God is in it. Do what you can for the kingdoms of kingdom's cause. God saved you to serve. Amen? And you cannot serve this king without serving others. Amen? Let's bow our hearts before the Lord.